Well, good morning, everyone. It really is a, a privilege and a joy to be with you here this morning at Highlands at your, the culmination of your missions festival. Um, obviously, as you will have heard from Joseph, I'm not originally from around these parts. I think it's the accent that gives it away. Um, but I'm from South Africa, and Lord willing, we'll be returning there within the next couple of years to continue with some church plant work and hopefully the training of ministers as well. Uh, there's a great need in South Africa, as there is in many places in the world. And so we would really covet your prayers as we endeavor to fulfill what God has uh, set before us. Uh, just another thing that has really been a great blessing for us here in Jackson in, in being in the United States is what I call providential friendships. And I have a number of friends that we've obviously developed, uh, hopefully, life, lifetime relationships with at First Prayers, which is where I'm serving, but also with Joseph and with Lee and with Brad and, of course, with Billy and a number of the other folks here at Highlands. It's been really great, and we look forward to ongoing uh, connections over the years that lie ahead. Let me just say this before I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the text for this morning, that I do want to bring greetings from the brothers and sisters at First Prayers but also bring you greetings from brothers and sisters in Pretoria, South Africa. I'm still in contact with a number of them, and I know that they would want me to share that with you and to know that they are praying for you and that they are in, you are in their prayers, as I hope that you will keep them in your prayers too. Well, let me invite you to take up your Bibles, if you have them, please. And if you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. And we're going to be reading from verses 15 through 21 this morning. Now, as you're turning there, let me just briefly remind you of where we are in the gospel narrative. Uh, Jesus has been baptized. The Spirit of God has descended upon him as a dove. And the words have been uttered by the Father from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And some of those words are what you're going to see again in the text that's before us in verse 15 through 21. As he is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven... And as he's performing miracles, as he's healing the sick, and as he's fellowshipping and interacting with sinners and the poor and the outcast of society, friends, we need to remember that these are all glimpses of grace that we're being given with regards to the compassion and the mercy and the love and the plan of God. And each of these glimpses are meant to direct us more and more to the majesty of Christ so that we may behold him and we may direct our gaze upon his loveliness. And of course... As he is interacting with people, he is gaining a, f a following. There are a number of people who are wanting to follow, out, follow him because of the gentleness. He's capturing their hearts. But we need to recognize also in, the, in this gospel that the more he is having a following, the more there is also a group of people who are growing in their hatred and their animosity towards him, especially from the religious establishment. And so as he's demonstrating the love and the grace of God, they are becoming more acrimonious towards him. And what we see is, especially in verses 14 of the passage that we are about to pick up on from verse 15, we read about how the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Not whether to kill him, but now they were looking for a point where they could corner him and they could be justified in actually having reason to kill him. That's the level of hatred that they had towards this man who was moving with such gentleness and loveliness and compassion and mercy. You see, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the tension of this specific area of the drama, we are given something 
somewhat more of the beauty and the wonder and the uniqueness in terms of the description of Jesus Christ. I think it's one of the most beautiful descriptions that we're actually given in the whole of Scripture. And so as we turn our attention to that, we see that this servant who embodies mercy, he is the one who will bring justice to the nations that we're told. And so we're going to read from Matthew 12, from verse 15. And before we do that, let's just bow our heads as we ask the Lord's blessing upon this morning. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you're the one that has gathered us here this morning. We thank you that it is your word that you have given to us. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would prepare our hearts and our minds, prepare the soil of our hearts and minds to receive from you this truth. And, Father, we pray that you would allow your word to not return void, but to do what needs to be done in order to bring forth the fruit from us as your servants. And so, Lord, we praise you and we give you thanks And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, from verse 15, we read, Jesus, aware of this, in other words, aware that the Pharisees are wanting to kill him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the nations will hope. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. You know, history tells us and reminds us that for a number of years prior to the 1950s, the world missionary movement was rather concerned about some developments and news that was coming out of China. For a good 200 years prior to the 1950s, there was a a constant stream of Protestant missionaries who were able to go into the country of China and reach new people groups with this message of the gospel of grace. There was a, a great degree of freedom. But by 1952, the communist government had ensured that every missionary had been banished from their shores. And no more missionaries were going to be granted entrance into the country if they were coming under the banner of Christianity. Now, many wondered around the globe as to whether the gospel, whether the church, whether the the people who were made up the church and the gospel as it continues to permeate, many were concerned as to whether it was going to survive, whether this witness would survive, because it seemed as if things were hanging by a thread. Now, in the passage that's before us, It's quite easy in the tension of the drama that is building up to where we've picked up the passage in verse 15. It's quite easy for us to think that the the life and the ministry of Jesus is hanging by a thread. Jesus is aware that the religious leaders are out to kill him. So what does he do? He withdraws from them. But I want you to notice that he does not withdraw from the ministry and the mission to which he has been commissioned. He continues to proclaim justice. He continues to demonstrate and act in mercy and compassion. And we see this as he mercifully heals those who follow him. 
And yet he gives them an instruction to remain quiet and silent. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want to add fuel to the fire of those who are growing in their animosity and hatred towards him. Because his time had not yet arrived for him to lay down his life. Friends, it's in the withdrawal, it's in the healings, it's in this statement to remain quiet. That Matthew, the gospel writer, he identifies and understands how Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, which is the passage in 18 to 21 of the text before us. Matthew understands that Isaiah 42 is being fulfilled in his very midst. That the gentleness and the loveliness and the uniqueness of this Christ that is spoken of 750 years before He is the man who is right here ministering the grace of God, ministering the message of the kingdom. And it's in this fulfilled prophecy that more of the beauty, more of the loveliness, more of the majesty of Christ is absolutely being put on display. And so we need to be asking the question, who is this one who proclaims and who embodies justice? so that the nations will put their hope in him. And so I have three points. It's a very Presbyterian thing to come with three points, I'm realizing. But three points out of the text for this morning. Hope from God, hope through Christ, hope to the nations. Those are the three points. Hope from God, hope through Christ, hope to the nations. The first one is this, hope from God. Who is the servant? Who is the servant that's been identified with this prophecy 750 years before? We read in verses 18, Behold. I love it when the scriptures say that because there's a sense in which whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's in the New Testament, it's almost as if the writer is saying in the midst of the tension of what is happening here, as in the midst of him having to withdraw because people are wanting to kill him, don't miss out what you're going to be revealed with regards to the Messiah. Don't miss out. Wake up, listen up. And so we read, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. I tried to emphasize a couple of those words, as you may have recognized. You know, in recent years, um, John Stott, and I think that John Piper has made it very well known in his uh, preaching, But John Stott has been a prominent voice reminding the church that God is a missionary God. By his very nature, he is a missionary God. In other words, from the time of Adam's fall, from the time of those words in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, God has been on a mission to save a people for his own possession from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. God intends... For the name of Jesus Christ to be ringing in every corner of the world. That they will trust him. They will put their hope in him. Not for the things of this world, but for the things that has been promised to them in Jesus Christ. Now, something that is very dear to us as Presbyterians, as Reformed folk, is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. We believe absolutely that God is completely sovereign in the events every event of life, and that he's moving all things towards its culmination and its end. But another thing that in Scripture is very clear is that God reveals himself to others through a witness. That's what Brad's prayer was all about this morning. He spoke very clearly about that. God 
reveals himself to another person through a witness. And so these servants, we see it start in the days of Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says to them, to him, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless those who bless you. I will bless, I will curse those who curse you. And you see, God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, the nation as a whole, the nation of Israel was meant to be the instrument of God's compassion and mercy to the nations. It was always that they would be the ones that were going to be heralding, hey, this is the true and living king. This is the true and living God. Bow before him. But there was a problem. Like all of us, in some sense or another, we become insular, self-focused. And they became a faithless, a corrupt, an idolatrous people in many respects. And we see it time and time again in the Old Testament where he's having to rebuke them and draw them and bring them back to himself. You see, they were not taking the name of Jesus, the name of Yahweh, I should say, to the nations. They loved the mire of their own lives more than they did the obedience to their Lord. It reminds me of a, a little beetle that we have in South Africa. It's called a dung beetle. I don't know, you probably have them here in America as well. It's a beetle about an inch long. And what it does is it scours the grasslands looking for dung. It's pretty self-explanatory in terms of what this beetle does, I think. But he scours the grasslands looking for dung from animals, and he rolls it into a ball on his, black, on his back legs, pushing himself with his front legs. And this one morning, we were out on a, a bit of a drive in one of the national parks in South Africa, and we came across this little beetle pushing his ball of dung across the road. And so we thought, well, this is a great opportunity to observe something of God's creation and also to protect him from oncoming traffic, we thought. So we drew alongside him, opened the door, and all five of us faces staring down on this little one-inch beetle. And we thought, wow, look at that. Magnificent the way God has created this little dude. And then all of a sudden, he stopped in his tracks. And over a period of about 30 seconds, his disposition seemed to change as he was no longer pushing himself on his front legs, but he reared up on his back legs and he started to hold his front legs out and started to shake them. And we thought to ourselves, you know, isn't it interesting that he's essentially trying to say to us, stay away from my ball of dung. That's how we interpreted it. <laughs> stay away from our door, ball of dung. Go and get your own. This is mine. Little did he know that we weren't interested in that at all. But I've often thought back on that, and I've thought, you know, what a great analogy for us as human beings. We're so busy protecting the mire of our own lives that we don't see the grace and the compassion and the mercy of God as he comes along and he shields us, not just for this life by the blood of the Son, but also he shields us and takes us home to be with him in glory. You see, Israel had failed. Israel had failed as the servant of God, and thus the whole of the Old Testament is constantly pointing us forward to the one who would be the God-sent one, the final Messiah, the one who would lay down his life all the way to Calvary. And so I want you to see three things about this God-sent servant that is from God. This servant, in verse 18, he's chosen of the Father. He is chosen of the Father. He is not self-appointed. He is uniquely selected, if you want, hand-picked in some sense. And he's hand-picked from before the foundation of the world to fulfill the task that has been given to him, and that is to redeem his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
But he's not only chosen, we're told in verses 18, he's also, this servant is cherished. He is cherished. He is the beloved with whom the Father is well pleased. When you hear that language, immediately you should be thinking of the words that were uttered from heaven at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. Two key points in the life of Jesus Christ that are brought together in this text before us. This servant is the Father's only begotten Son, the eternally loved and the eternally chosen one, the one who's been appointed to this task because no one else was able to fulfill it. You see, Jesus, in understanding that he was chosen and beloved and cherished, he knew that irrespective of what people said, no matter how they humiliated him, no matter what they did to him in his flesh, nothing could change that identity of relationship that he had with his father. Don't miss that, please, because that has implications for us. But he's not only chosen and cherished, I want you to notice that this servant is also commissioned. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Immediately we should be thinking of Isaiah 61, where he's anointed by the spirit. And what is he anointed by the spirit to do? To go and bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim good news to the poor and to the captives. That's part of what we actually are seeing unfolding right in in this text before us. Friends, this is what justice is. Justice is to live rightly before God and before humanity. It is to live rightly before God and before humanity. And Jesus Christ does that perfectly in every way. In every way. Now also I want you to notice and don't miss this either. Because I think that what God is declaring through Isaiah and through obviously Matthew here is that this servant's son, yes, he is setting his face like flint to to finish his commission. The mission that has been given to him. But not by himself. He does not try to do it in his own strength. In his humanity, Jesus Christ, he does it in the assurance of his identity with the Father. That's what gives him a zeal and a passion because of this love that the Father has for him and that he has for his Father. That's what emboldened him to do and to go all the way to the cross of Calvary. But not only the assurance of the identity with the Father, It's also in complete reliance upon the Spirit. Complete reliance upon the Spirit. There's a Trinitarian feel to this as he brings healing to the nations. Now, brothers and sisters, let me bring it a little bit closer to home. If you're trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and with your very life, then you need to be reminded this morning that you have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And this is not your own doing, but it is the mercy and grace of God that has been shone upon you And brought you to himself. That's your identity. You have been chosen in Christ. But not only chosen and brought into union with Jesus Christ. You're also the beloved of God. Because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, God in Christ Jesus. Friends, you are in union with Jesus Christ. And that very thought ought to overwhelm us so that we become a people who are more obedient to the things that God has ordained for us to do and how we are to live in this world. So we are his ambassadors as he sends us out. Every spiritual blessing that is Christ's is yours. Just remember and think about that. As you work out your faith with fear and trembling with each new day and as you bring forth fruit of the gospel... You do it as a beloved son and as a beloved daughter of a king, not just some other human being.
but a son and a daughter of the king. It's your identity. And it's because you are chosen and because you are beloved of the Father that that's your identity. We need to understand that we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has brought you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. There's a purpose that Christ has redeemed you with his blood. And so, friends, you have been commissioned, chosen, beloved, commissioned. And it's not an option. And so if you are here this morning as a believer, there is a zeal and a burden that ought to compel us to make Jesus known. Whether it be to your next door neighbor, whether it be around the road or whether it be by going across the nations. And maybe you're not the person to relocate, but then we can actually equip those who do feel the call to be relocated. So the question that I want to ask you at this point is this. Brothers and sisters, why are you or will you not go? Is it fear? Fear of what people will say to you or do to you? Is it perhaps a fear that you will lose the comforts that we have in this world? Is it perhaps self-reliance? And I guess part of what I'd like to see and I'm praying for, is that God would once again capture our hearts with what it means to really love the one who is the lover of our souls this morning. We do need to remember that he did not come initially to judge. He came to embody the message of mercy. But friends, a day is coming where he's going to return in pure blazing glory and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And there's no more hope, one life and then the judgment for all. It's part of what we sang in one of the songs a little earlier as well. We must declare this message while the days are given to us. We do not know whether tomorrow is guaranteed or not. Use the opportunities that God gives to you. Friends, there's a, a man that uh, was heading up, he was one of the directors of Voice of the Martyrs, uh, a man by the name of Tom White, and he was on an expedition to Vietnam to go and see how the Christians were coping in uh, some of the refugee camps. There was tremendous persecution of the, the, the Christians during this time. He went with one of his teammates, and his teammate was horrified at how they were enduring in the midst of great suffering. And he said to Tom, he said, how do they, how do, they do this? And here's how a Vietnamese Christian responded. He said this, do you not understand that suffering is not the worst thing that can happen, but disobedience to God is far worse? I think there's something that we can learn even from that very simple statement. That our obedience to God must always be first and foremost in everything that we do and how we live our lives. That brings me to the second point. My first point is always the longest, so you won't be here till 2 o'clock, so you can relax. That brings me to the second point for this morning, and it's simply this, is that our hope is from God, but the hope is through Christ. It is through Jesus. What does this passage say to us about the one who proclaims this justice? We see this in verses 19 and 20. We need to remember that many people in Jesus' day were expecting the return of the Messiah. And so when they read in verses 18, he will proclaim justice in verses 20 until he brings justice to victory. They were expecting some sort of military or political power who was going to overthrow the Roman and the religious status quo. But Jesus, he didn't come to meet their expectations. He came to humbly 
bring justice to the lost. That message of grace, the message where he would take upon himself that which was due to others. And he obviously would embody that right the way to the cross. It's a picture in verses 19 and 20 that we have of non-violence. There's a gentleness, there's a patience in the way that he deals with people. And yet it's a picture of the loveliness and the uniqueness of Jesus, isn't it? And I think that we're given this so that it would humble us, so that we ourselves would recognize and realize that we too are to go in the joy that has been set before us, in the joy of the one that has captured our hearts. Three brief things out of verses 19 and 20. Firstly, he accomplishes his work quietly. Notice that. He accomplishes his work quietly. He came to seek and save those with no hope, not destroy them. And so he does not fight. He does not draw attention or advertise himself. There is nothing hysterical or self-assertive about Jesus' ways In fact, it's so contradictory and opposite to the way that the modern political and social media environment uh, operates, where the order of the day is to try and put people down verbally and emotionally and to basically squelch the image of God in that person. That is not Jesus' way. And we see this most clearly when his enemies are raging and they are scheming against him. He is calm in his withdrawal. Later on in the gospel, when he is being falsely accused, how does he respond? He responds with gentleness, understanding that they are image bearers, and he treats them accordingly, even though they're in the process of having him put to death. And then what about a little bit later on in the passage of the gospel? When he's led as a lamb to the slaughter, and when he's beaten, and when he's being crushed by nails, and the full wrath of the righteousness of God descends upon him, What's his response? He silently and lovingly prays, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing, and yet into my hand, into your hands, I commit my spirit. There's a tenderness, and there's something that draws us in with regards to this Jesus. And so firstly, he does his work quietly. Secondly, he accomplishes his work with great gentleness, brothers and sisters. He doesn't come with a sledgehammer. He could have called down ten legions of angels at any point in time if he wanted to. But you see, it tells us in the text that a bruised reed and he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. One commentator said this, and I think it's a beautiful description. In ancient times, reeds were used for many purposes, but once a reed was bent or battered, it was useless. Shepherds would make a flute in order to play music to calm the sheep. But when the reed became cracked, Or when it was soft, the shepherd would simply break it and throw it away. When a lamp burned to the end of the wick, it would only smolder and smoke with no light. And since this wick was absolutely useless, it was snuffed and thrown away, just like the broken reed. Discarded. Isn't that the way that the world treats people? It uses, it chews, and it spits people out when they're of no use anymore. And yet the example that we're given here, the prototype that we're given in Christ Jesus, is something completely different. Because in a sense, he comes along with the love of the Father in order to actually take those who have been bruised by the flesh and the world and the devil, and he binds them up and he restores them so that they may once again radiate the beauty in which they were created to radiate. Friends, Isn't that exactly what Christ did for you? 
He's the one that came to you. He drew you to himself. He's the one that cleaned you with his own blood. And he is the one that has bestowed bountiful, plenteous blessings because of the work of his son upon you. It's what he did for Zacchaeus. It's what he did for Mary Magdalene. It's what he did for Simon Peter, Samaritan woman, and the countless other examples that we have throughout the scriptures. Broken reeds, smoldering wicks that should have been just discarded by the world, and yet they were captured by the gentleness of Christ and restored and sent out to be his commissioners of grace in some sense. They were sent out to proclaim hope. If you're here this morning, and I don't know the details of your lives, but if you're here this morning and you feel as if you're a broken reed and a smoldering wick, won't you cry out to Jesus Christ this morning again, please? He is the only one in this world that can restore you to the fullness of your identity in God. And as he does that, may you be praying that your very life, when you're restored by the gentleness of this man, this God-man, that as he restores you, that you may have the boldness to go and speak about. We can do no other than speak about what he has done for us because of the way that he has treated us. May we be those people. Gentleness. And then thirdly, he accomplishes his work through patience. Patient perseverance. Patient perseverance. Nothing alarms Jesus. Nothing. He knows his life is in his Father's hands from beginning to end. Nothing is going to remove him one day earlier than God had already ordained and and planned. When they plan to kill him, what does he do? He simply just withdraws. And friends, we need to remember that these people... Jesus understood that eventually they would have their way and they would succeed in their plan in nailing him to the cross of wood. But at the same time, the religious leaders didn't know that that was part of God's plan too, was to have Jesus die. But not out of hatred, but as a demonstration of the Father's mercy as the penalty of sin was paid once and for all on the tree of Calvary so that you and I would not need to suffer the wrath of God but we will be able to come into the countless blessings that he's prepared for us. Friends, it's all of these things that are meant to move us in the very core of our being so that we become the agents, his hands and feet, to go and tell this good news to the nations. Christ is victorious. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that Christ is victorious? Because that's meant to shape the way that we actually live this day and every day of our lives. Every evil act, every word will be punished. His plan will succeed. Nothing escapes God's majestic gaze. And it will be accounted to before his, his throne one day. Everything. You know, in my home country of South Africa, it's a country that continues to be shattered by sin and idolatry, as most countries in the world, I guess. In fact, not most countries, I think every country in the world. They're still reeling under the effects of the apartheid regime and, of course, the commitment of so many of the people to the animistic religions. And like every country, there are people in South Africa that are hell-bound unless they need, until they hear that message of hope. They need that hope. They need that message of grace. They need to hear about Jesus Christ. And it is to this that Jesus commissions us as his people to go. And to equip those 
who are being sent to the field. And that brings me to my third and my final point. And it's really in conclusion that I say this, that the hope is from God, the hope is through Christ, but the hope is always to the nations. Verses 21 in the passage that's before us. Friends, when we speak of the nations, as Joseph said last week, it's not that we're talking about countries or nation states, but we're talking about all of those who are outside of the body of Christ. All of those who are not in union with Jesus Christ. You see, from God's perspective, there are only two groups. There are those who are in union with Jesus Christ, who love Jesus Christ, and there are those who are outside, who hate Jesus, like the Pharisees. There are those who consider themselves and understand that they are refugees in this world. And there are those who understand that they're trying to make this world their very home. You're either of the seed of Abraham or you're lost in your sins. And here's the mystery, is that God has left the message of grace with the one group to be ministered to the other. That's why this glorious gospel, this thing that has captured your heart, this Jesus that has captured your heart, friends, it can never, ever remain with you. Here's what Jesus says in the great high priestly prayer, John 17. As you sent me into the world, obviously praying to his father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And he's speaking to his disciples and the specific commission that they are given. But I think that there's an overflow effect to every generation because each and every one of us as disciples, as servants who have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb, we too have this message to make Jesus known to the people around us and to the nations. I think there's an expectation that's implied in the very text there as we're emboldened by the Spirit. Let me close with this analogy or this story that I was reading just about a couple of weeks ago. The story is told of a man by the name of Charlie Peace. This is in the late 1800s. He was a criminal uh, facing execution. And as he was walking down towards the gallows, what was tradition in those days was for a, a minister from the Anglican church to be walking behind him and to be reading from the Anglican prayer, prayer book. And this is what he was reading. The minister was reading, Those who die without Christ experience hell forever, an eternal pain and eternal torment. At that moment, it said that Charlie turned to the minister, kind of surprised, and said, do you really believe that? And the minister turned to him after a bit of a pause. I guess he was surprised that the, Charlie was speaking to him. He said, yeah, I actually do. Here's Charlie's response. He said, well, I don't. But if I did, I'd get down on my hands and knees and crawl all over Great Britain, even if it were paved with pieces of broken glass to take that message you just told me to whomever will hear. Is there an urgency in your soul and in your spirit for those in your family, those your next-door neighbors around the corner, that they will hear this good news? Is there an urgency? The Joshua Project is an online um, web page that gives us statistics with regards to missions. They estimate that at the moment there are approximately 3.1 billion people in the world in the unreached people groups who have never, ever, ever heard the gospel of grace. They don't even hear about Jesus Christ. Friends, the fields are really ripe unto harvest. And that's part of the reason that I think that we have this focus on mission, isn't it? And I know it's once a year where there's a concentrated time on this, this specific topic but I hope that we're not just simply here to tick the box and say, okay, we've done what we needed to do for this year and not simply to talk about this. But I do hope that somewhere along the line we're here, we're beckoning Christ to revive our hearts with regards to the lost of the nations. 
And at the same time that we're here pleading with God to help us to trust him that as we sacrificially give out of the comforts of our lives for the furtherance of the gospel of grace to the nations, that he will not let us down and not provide for our needs in our own home and in our own family. I also hope and pray that we are a people who are being stirred to beseech his throne that the nations would be healed through Jesus' name. It's a glorious gospel. It's a fantastic privilege, a wonderful privilege to be in Christ. And there's going to be no greater joy, and this is something that I mentioned at the men's breakfast yesterday. There's going to be no greater joy than when we get to heaven and we're seated around the throne of the king and we start to hear the testimonies of those where a seed was simply thrown out from Highlands Presbyterian Church through one of the missionaries, through something of the events and the ministry of this church and the ripple effect that it's had on countless people. And just to hear how God used that for his own glory and for the building up of his kingdom as he brings people in. I think it's going to be magnificent just to hear these testimonies of his grace. And so, friends, I pray that the Lord will enable us to sacrificially help this hope arrive to the nations so that ultimately in every corner, the name of Jesus is the one that is ringing out in every language and tribe and amongst the people. May God bless this to our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the majesty of Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, ruler over all. And yet in the mysteries of the way that you have ordained things to take place, you have captured our hearts and you've commissioned us to take this good news to those who do not yet know. Father, embolden us by your Spirit. Secure us in our identity as being in union with Jesus Christ so that we may be that people. That as we read about what happens in the Scriptures, as we hear about the testimonies of all those throughout the history of planet Earth who have come to a saving faith, as we just think about our own lives of salvation, Father, may we once again be renewed in our vigor, in our zeal, and our passion to serve you. Father, cause us to be a people who rely completely upon you and teach us what it means to live sacrificially before the throne of grace. And so, Father, bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.